Welcome to the Electoral Pulse by FTI Consulting, a podcast that explores the latest trends and gets us thinking about how the European Parliament elections impact people and politics across the EU. This series will discuss election updates, what they mean, and what we can expect in our capitals with guest experts from FTI offices across Europe. I'm Anne-Sophie, one of the Electoral Pulse hosts and a senior director here at FTI Consulting. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to my co-host and colleague, Jeremy. Jeremy, you're here, one of the resident experts at FTI. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and why you're involved in the European elections work. Sure, thanks. I mean, I'm very excited to be here. So as you said, I'm Jeremy. I'm also a senior director here at FTI uh, Consulting in Brussels. Um, And what I'm going to try to do is that use and tap into my previous experience because I used to work for several years or many years actually in the European Parliament. And I also have a previous political background. So I'm going to try my best to tap into that while we go through uh, the different dynamics that are upcoming with this European elections and try to decrypt a bit what is happening and what we can expect. But you have also actually worked already on the European elections, but from a consultancy side. So can you tell us maybe how was that like? Absolutely. So it wasn't in the heat of the moment or in the parliament like you, but was following it super closely. And I think all that it's shown me is how important these bigger political dynamics are in the actual then day-to-day nitty-gritty policymaking that follows really. So really excited um, to be thinking about the next mandate, what that will look like. And ultimately, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, we talk about a European election, but it's, uh, it's really 28 elections, right? It's uh, 27 elections per country and then Absolutely. the dynamics that form themselves at EU level. So that's why in the coming episodes, looking forward to hosting our colleagues from Paris, from Madrid, and from all over Europe. But maybe we can start with a little bit of, of groundwork. Uh, for those, Jeremy, that maybe don't know as much or aren't based here in Brussels or aren't working in this EU bubble, can you tell us a little bit more, what are the European elections? I mean, we've talked a little bit already. And really, why do they matter? Why should people care from a policymaking side, but also just on a more human side? Absolutely. So, I mean, European elections, it's really the moment where uh, throughout the union, you will have uh, a common election uh, in order to elect members of the European Parliament, which is one of the uh, co-legislators at European level. And as you have already kind of mentioned, it is that it's really one election, but is taking place in 27 member states, meaning that it's actually 27 elections in order to elect members in the European Parliament. And every member state will have its own candidates, will have its own dynamics, their own political debate sometimes uh, that may differ actually from one another. And um, But all that and the sum of that will then lead to the new parliament that we can expect um, by uh, June 24. And it matters because, I mean, as you know, the European Parliament throughout uh, the history of uh, the European Union has grown in power um, and has much more competences than before. And they, I mean, the Parliament really became really a co-legislators on the vast majority of topics that are being discussed and decided at European level. Um, So it is actually a really important elections. It also gives the power... um, 
for every EU citizen to really designate someone, their own representative uh, in that house at European level. And of course, the other co-legislator is the council, which is uh, the representative of member states. But it's really, um, I mean, it, it's really the governments that are actually taking the decision in that second house, if I can say. Um, so the link, of course, with the European citizens is there, but it's more indirect than it is with the European Parliament. Yeah, and you've spoken a bit about the Parliament. It's also the second largest democratically elected Parliament in the world after India, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and we do call them European Parliament elections, but it's not just about the Parliament. Can you share a little bit more about the impact that these parliamentary elections have on some of the other institution making bodies here in Brussels? Absolutely. So once the European election takes place, actually, it's not just, as you said, a matter of electing new members of parliament that will trigger actually a new European Commission, because following the European elections, the, the European Council, so heads of states will actually designate um, uh, someone to be the next president of the European Commission, that person will have to go through the Parliament uh, process in order to get the support of the European Parliament, and then you will have a new European Commission. And for those who don't know, a European Commission is actually the European government, if you want, uh, that is actually the one that is initiating uh, new legislation. Um, but I think what is important is that while we're going through the process is really to understand all the different dynamics that will take place because of course according to who gets elected you will have i mean different a majority that will be able to uh, be formed around um that the parliament and that will have the support or give the support to the new european um commission but what is tricky is that, and we'll deep dive this to afterwards, is that, of course, it used to be very much the traditional political family that would actually create that majority in order to support the European Commission. But as we're the seeing... The traditional families Sorry. <laughs> the Christian Democrats, the Social Democrats, and then also then uh, the more, what we call more center, which is composed of um, parties like uh, Emmanuel Macron, but also the traditional liberals. Uh, and they used to really be at the heart of the whole pol EU policy making decisions. Um, but we do see different dynamics taking place, uh, which could lead to actually some differences, meaning that it is possible that the next European Parliament will be able to create other type of majorities, which may looked, will look way more uh, on the right side and integrate, for example, political parties like ECR, uh, which is really a more right-wing party, where, for example, Meloni is, um, which then could, of course, completely change the different dynamics. I'm not saying that the European Commission will be elected by the ECR, the Christian Democrats, and uh, the Centre, but I'm saying that while they are negotiating the different legislation throughout the mandate, that is a majority that could actually hold, uh, which would have great impact of the outcome of the legislation. Maybe I think there's two pieces really to what you're saying here. There's a piece on how the parliament is involved in appointing the new commission president, which, as you said, sets the, you know, right of initiative, right? On legislation yeah. through the Spitzenkandidaten process. Can we talk a little bit more about that? And then I think there's a second piece to what you said, which is how are the coalitions 
in the parliament changing and how can that potentially impact majorities in legislation? But maybe the Spitzenkandidaten process, another long German word that we've adopted in our uh, EU uh, Brussels bubble speak. Absolutely. So every political family will, um, well, the system allows every political family to designate one representative as the they're going to elections to be really their number one that would then become the new president of the European Commission. And so you would have the Christian Democrats that would select one, the European, um, the the liberals would do the same, I mean, with the center uh, would do the same, and then you would have social Democrats doing it as well, and so on. The question is that this has worked, for example, not this mandate with von der Leyen, but the one before where you had uh, Juncker, who was the candidate of the Christian Democrats, um, center-right, and that then was appointed by member states in order to become uh, to be suggested as the new president of the European Commission, and he was approved by the European Parliament. The only thing is that last time with von der Leyen, who is the current uh, president of the European Commission, also Christian Democrat, uh, center-right, she was designated in another way, meaning that the Christian Democrats initially, through the Spitzenkandidat, suggested somebody else. Or Manfred Weber. Indeed. <laughs> Uh, but member states, because they hold really the the, the head of states, really hold the, the the competence of actually designated the candidate in the end in front of the European Parliament. They made a decision that it wouldn't be him. It would be still the first political family, which is the Christian Democrats. But they uh, agreed on uh, von der Leyen. Um, so that means that last time in uh, 19, the Spitzenkandidat process was not respected. The question we have now is whether the it will actually first really take place. So we're waiting for the whole big European congresses of the different political families in order to take that decision and designate someone. But then that still doesn't mean that the member states would actually still um, choose that person. And there is a possibility that it will not be the case. Uh, for example, the uh, Christian Democrats, we know... And it's not announced, but more, most likely it's going to be again uh, von der Leyen that will be appointed as Spitzenkandidat. Of course, that means that member states will have to support her again. And that means that they will have to support the whole mandate that, uh, the pre the mandate that she currently did and the political um, direction that she took with her mandate. This, of course, you could argue that, well, I mean, member states agreed on most of the legislation that she put forward. So why wouldn't she be put again? The question is, of course, who will sit at that table during the uh, selection of um, the, the lead candidate for the European Commission? And that table, which is called the European Council, will still very much change. And there are a lot of uncertainties there. Not only have, okay, the, the recent Polish elections where he had a big shift there that where the Christian Democrats took back power. But then you have also what is currently happening with the Netherlands, who's going to be the next prime minister. And then you have actually a series of other elections that will take place um, until July, September, uh, when the actual decision will be taken European Council, which can very much change. And to be fair, when you look at there is already uh, in Italy, you have a prime minister that is 
from the ECR, meaning the uh, right wing party and not from the Christian Democrat center right party. You have already changes that happen. And so that will define the likeliness of a candidate to be appointed or not. And that means that the Spitzenkandidat can, of course, not be respected. And add to that the fact that some groups are presenting multiple Spitzenkandidaten, men, women, a group. Some groups are refusing to present Spitzenkandidats at all because they Absolutely. say, we tried it once, worked once, didn't work the second time. Member states do what they would like anyway. So lots of dynamics happening here, as you say, where European citizens indirectly have a say on who could become the European Commission president but also to the governments and the member states making that decision for the ultimate top job in Brussels. Absolutely. But I would, to be fair, even if the council doesn't decide to support, the European council doesn't decide to, to, to follow the Spitzenkandidat process again, it does have one merit, is that you do have then central figures at the highest political debate at EU level, where you can have actually a debate with a representative of each political family. So even if in the end it doesn't take place, you would still have a debate happening where all these lead candidates would actually debate about the future of Europe with their own uh, sensitivities. Exactly. So I think if you want for the politicization of the of the European debate and the, and how the European Union actually becomes more like a, poli- a, re- a real political body, I think it is still an interesting dynamic uh, and that it has its uh, purpose. It puts a face or faces, depending what group, Absolutely. on what is really an eclection of national parties that choose to cooperate in political families. Absolutely. But it can also be, to a certain extent, um, lead to a certain confusion sometimes. And that's also the whole challenge is that, as we were saying, the European elections remain still very much 27 national elections, where you have each political party at national level have their own lead candidate, right? With their own debate, with their own dynamics and their own... um, uh, political priorities, right? So when you have a debate at European level that most likely will be in English, and then you have at national level other candidates, they're not always 100% united also at European level that at national level. So all of that can also lead to a certain level of, of confusion. But in the end, that's how right now we are uh, creating the political debate of the European Union. And so where are we in that debate? So we've spoken a bit, okay, first week of June, we're going to have elections happening across 27 member states. Can you share a little bit more about where are we in that process? Absolutely. So at European level, you do, we are still waiting for the big political families to come up with their own manifestos, um, with uh, their lead candidate, as we were talking about. Um, there are a lot of parameters that you need to look into. It's also what are the big challenges that the EU is facing? So where are also the big political upcoming priorities? We know that, for example, uh, competitiveness, which is the new word that is, I think, is still the same as strategic autonomy. I was going to say strategic autonomy. <laughs> it's still, in the end, it's a potato, potato. But anyway, uh, that is still going to be one of the big uh, topics that will um, influence the political campaign. And I think different political families have a diff- sometimes a bit of a different um touch or the interpretation of what strategic economy should look like. You have also the whole green agenda. Um, 
we do expect that it's going to be a bit different than last time because last time you had a lot in 19, a lot of students that were on the street asking for way more ambitious measures. The European Commission came with a lot of ambitious measures this mandate. The question is how much the green agenda will still be ambitious. And there are many parameters there. And that's another debate that we can have at another stage. Then you have also the digital side. What's going to happen there? You have also the whole question of cost of living, which is something that might seem very abstract, but if you decrypt it, it can actually really lead to um, very concrete measures that be that can, that can, I mean, take place in very different sectors, whether it's energy, whether it's uh, real estate, whether it's uh, the food industry, whether there are a lot, I mean, you can really um, decompose it in the different sectors very easily. And it's something, the cost of living is really something that is increasing in the political um, debate. So of course you have that is one element, is everything that is going to be about the topics. Then you're going to have also at national level, um, we're still waiting also for their own manifestos because every party at national level will have a manifesto about what they want to advocate for at European level. Um, you were also waiting, and there are a lot of differences there in uh, the different member states of uh, the different lists. So we know that some countries are way more advanced than others. For example, Denmark have already, there's a lot of, uh, there's more clarity on who's going to run there compared to, for example, I don't know, uh, Poland. Ireland or even, Ireland. a couple exactly. of weeks before. Exactly. Yeah. So those dynamics, of course, play a role. And that is something that we will, of course, look at. And that's why we're starting from an early stage because the developments are not taking place at the same time. When the list will be out, it's not, at all harmonized. Um, so, and it will play, of course, a role in the different uh, political campaigns. And on top of that, there's an additional element that we need to take into account, and we already mentioned it, is that there are upcoming elections, national elections, um, whether it's before the European elections or actually on the same day. In Belgium, we will actually vote uh, for the regional level, for the national level, and for the European level. And several months later, we'll go for the local. Just 24 will be the big year, but um, that will play a huge role also on how the political campaign will be um, taking place. Because, of course, European elections are, well, of course, I mean, it's the realities that European elections gain less interest. Um, and we see it every day. The debates are not really as um high or important as the ones that you have at national level. So if you have a national campaign taking place at the same time or just before, it will completely take the whole media attention uh, than, uh, of course, if you have only one European election uh, taking place. And that's what we're hearing even from uh, our colleagues in Poland, right? The, the shift that we've seen with the national politics. I think there's been a lot of talk in Brussels. Oh, will that be replicated at EU level? And fundamentally, it will depend on turnout. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, turn absolutely. out from what parts of the country um, and, and what matters there. Absolutely, because that's also one thing is that, um, of course, the PIS is very strong and a very strong uh, political party in the ECR uh, family. Um, and one could say, OK, well, there was a, a, a shift in the in the in how people voted in Poland. But to be honest, that is not. We're not certain that in the end, the PIS will still not be the first political 
party of the European election, because as you said, the turnout is not the same at all, but also the debate might be different. And there's a lot that can happen also at national level where people could potentially say, well, then I'm going to actually uh, sanction because, and I'm not saying it's going to be the case for Poland, but it is the case for other member states where we have the question is whether what's happening at national level uh, will not impact the uh, European elections because there might be a vote where it's about sanctioning the political party that is in power at national level rather than actually deciding who you want to uh, have at European level. And all those dynamics are very important to understand if you really want to assess uh, the European elections. Yeah, and the European elections from an internal point of view, because, you know, we're living here in Europe and, and we're, you know, this legislation is impacting us, impacting companies. But also you mentioned 24 is going to be a big year also outside of Europe, US elections, UK elections. I mean, we can go on and on about the list of major elections happening in 2024. So all of this will have an impact as well. Absolutely. It's a big unknown. And I mean, that's the the stability that we had uh, until uh, now is very much linked also to the fact that it was always a shift from one traditional political family to another. Um, but now that we see that there is a rise, increasing rise of um, political uh, families that are not considered as traditional because they sit uh, more on the far right or the far left, can definitely have impact also on the outcome. And um, I mean, from what we see now, the European Parliament, there could be some stability, even if we see a, an increase from the far right. Um, but when you look at the different national elections that can easily shift look at what happened with Slovakia recently. I mean, it's, it's, uh, that is one example. There is also, if you take Belgium, you do see an increase, uh, in the polls of the far right in Flanders, not getting into the Belgian politics, but still far right in, in, in the one side of Belgium and far left on the other side of Belgium. And that will have definitely impact on, uh, what's coming up. Thanks so much. And Jeremy, for our listeners that are, you know, here with us right now at this point of time, is there one thing that you think people should watch out for in the coming weeks? In the coming weeks, I think it's, um, so now I would say that it's really about closing the mandate. So it's really the politics right now. It's really about uh, making sure that the legislation that was suggested by the European Commission, that both co-legislators uh, finalize them. So that's what the whole debate will concentrate on, but more and more we will see um, bigger political debates happening. There are actually a lot of thoughts about the future of a certain sector or uh, how the future of the EU, and there will be more and more think tanks coming out, there are political parties coming out, and I think all that is going to be key. And when you look at an election, you need to see it to a certain extent like a chessboard. You know, everybody knows where we start, which is today, where we are today. And then it's going to be who is moving one piece and then another. And then as you go, then you see the board is changing progressively, which will then lead to the final outcome of the European elections, which is not just about what is the, for who will be the first, which will be the first political family, but also what will be the big political priorities that will come out of it. And our listeners don't see you, but you are so excited and there's so much positive energy right now in this room. And I think for politics nerds like us, an election year at EU level is just as good as it gets, right? Absolutely. National dynamics conflating with EU dynamics. We're going to close here today. Thank you so much for listening in. 
and really stay tuned because in the coming weeks, we're going to be bringing in the experts that you really want to hear from, not us sitting in Brussels <laughs> talking about EU elections, but our experts from the capitals, from our different FTI offices to really discuss about how those local dynamics in France, Spain, Italy, you name it, are impacting fundamentally the big politics here in Brussels that is driving us all. Absolutely. So thank you so much and stay tuned. Yeah.